The time of sermon is just a continuation of our time of worship as we hear from the word of the Lord. As you get back to Psalm 115, I want to ask this question, which may sound um, interesting at first or maybe a little odd, but stick with me. My question is, what receives or who or what receives the most attention in your day-to-day life? What receives the most attention 
in your day-to-day life. If you look at the, on, on the clock, if, if you can map out your day in terms of hours spent doing X, Y, and Z, or hours, you know, either your hands at work on this, what your mind dwells on throughout the day, what your heart longs for throughout the day, how would that be divvied up? If you had a pie chart, what would get the most percentage? I want to argue this morning that the things that we devote our attention to, the things that we devote the loves of our heart to, is actually where we worship. Does that make sense? The thing that we devote ourselves to the most is really the thing that we worship. And there's this, I've, I think I quoted this speech briefly once sometime last year, but it, this is, comes from, it's, it's an excerpt from a speech by a guy named David Foster Wallace. He's no longer with us. He was a, an author, a writer, a blogger, and all that above. He was a skeptic. Um, uh, he wasn't a Christian, but he had a lot of fascinating things to say. He made a very famous 2007 commencement speech to a graduating class uh, at a college, at a university. And this is what he had to say about this conversation. And pay attention to this, it's so insightful. He says this, a huge percentage of the stuff that I tend to be automatically certain of, um, it turns out is often totally wrong and deluded. And here's one example of the utter wrongness of something I tend to be automatically sure of. You ready for this? Everything in my own immediate experience supports my deep belief that I am the absolute center of the universe, the realest, most vivid and important person in existence. We rarely talk about this sort of natural, basic self-centeredness because it's socially repulsive, but it's pretty much the same for all of us deep down. You hear this, you're like, yeah, that's, I, I, I can struggle with that too. Of course, because you're, you're human. There's something human about this, right? It keeps going. It is our default setting. It is hardwired into our boards at birth. Think about it. There is no experience you've had that you are not at the absolute center of. The world as your experience is right there in front of you or behind you to the left or right of you, on your TV, on your monitor, whatever. This is pre-smartphones. We can throw in that right in the minute. We'll talk about that. Other people's thoughts and feelings have to be communicated to you somehow, but your own are so immediate, so urgent and real. And then he continues on to how this leads us to the conversation of worship and how there's dangerous ground for us here. Again, he's a skeptic, but he, he offers insight that we as Christians can really glean from. He says this, This conversation is important because in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, says David Foster Wallace, he says there's actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And as a skeptic, he speaks, he says, an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. 
Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you down below. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths and proverbs and cliches and et cetera and so forth. The trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. And he keeps going, worshiping power, you'll feel weak weak and afraid. You worship your intellect, you'll be seen as smart. You'll end up feeling stupid and like you're a fraud, always on the verge of being found out and so on. And we hear that and we say, that kind of makes actually, that does make sense. Because what we worship, it shapes us. And the conversation I want to enter into this morning is to try to help us as Christians identify. We, we know that we want Jesus as the sole center of our worship. The Holy Spirit fills us in order to, com- to always consistently, hour by hour, try to reorient our heart to say, are you losing sight of your Lord and Savior? This is the daily job of the Spirit that he is constantly at work in our life, but our heart, our fleshly heart, continually seeks after other things as if those things might deliver what we're looking for in life. And as we're going to see in Psalm 115, those things actually shape, start shaping us. Again, as Wallace pointed out. I'm going to throw this out there in what's been called the, the black mirror. Those screens that we have in most of our pockets today. That if you turn off that screen, I think there's a little bit of a this isn't for me, I stole it for somebody else. A, a little bit of a philosophical kind of thing happening because when you turn that little screen off, who are you looking at? A blackened version of yourself in the reflection, right? It's you. Because we spend, statistics show, three to seven, 79% of smartphone users spend three to seven hours a day on their phones. Three to seven hours a day. And according to age, of course, there's big differences in what age category you're in as far as where you are in that time spectrum. That is a lot of time in our lives. And if I understand all these things correctly, what Psalm 115 is going to show us, that there's, there's a formative power with that that is shaping us, as David Kinneman said, the leader of the Barna Group, he said, our screens are actually becoming our disciples. As another author, Cal Newport, says of Georgetown Computer Science of something, um, computer something, he says, computer science, woo, there you go. He said that what we devote our attention to shapes our worldview. Simple statements, and we kind of know these things to be true, and it's this conversation we're going to address this morning. Because in Psalm 115, it gives and provides a reorientation to this. It begins with saying this, not to us, O Lord, O Yahweh, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. That's kind of like the introductory statement that says, okay, first off, the proper orientation to our lives is God be the glory and not us. And that is something that we need to literally every hour almost murmur murmur under our breath. This is no, this is not about me. This day is not about me. This conversation is not about me. This relationship is not about me. It is to God be the glory. 
in order that his glory may be shown through us, that his love and his faithfulness may be shown through us to those around us. Because we know what happens if we start reorienting that glory towards ourselves. We start starting fires all around us. We start burning relationships around us. We start curving everything inward to be about us. He continues on, and this is like a, almost like an apologetic psalm in some ways. Because in verse 2, he's thinking about in the ancient, this is a 20, uh, 700 or so year old psalm in a different part of the world, very long time ago here. He says, looking around at the nations that surround Israel, he says, why should the nations say, where is their God? In those days, they understood gods, because uh, mostly everybody was polytheist. Almost all of them were exclusively polytheistic. They worshipped many gods. They understood as gods living in certain, you know, geographical areas on this hill or in this city or in this one specific area. And apparently, we know why, as we'll see, they looked at Israel and they said, we, we, we don't see your God. Where is he? Because, in the book of Exodus, it said not to make images of Yahweh God. And that was unlike any of the nations around them. And they said, we don't, we don't see your God anywhere. Where, where is your God? And the psalmist says, well, our God is in the heavens, and he does as he pleases. In other words, he's king. And he's in the heavens above all of us, and he's ruling and reigning as king right now. In verse 4, he then looks at the idols of the nations. And this is really applicable to us. Pay attention. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throats. I think the Hebrew is that they, they can't clear, they can't like oh, make a noise at all. Like there's nothing coming out. No, nothing, right? Those who make them shall become like them. So do all who trust in the Lord. Those who make them will become like them. There's a question of life in this psalm. That if you pay attention, the word life is not in this psalm. If you pay close attention you find a conversation saying, where is life itself? Like the groanings in our heart that causes us to start worshiping this or yearning for that or groaning for this, right? It is orienting our hearts to say this is, this is actually a search for some kind of like better version of life a better version of what we experience in our day-to-day life. If you think about somebody 2,700 years ago in the ancient Near East crafting a little wooden idol, they're really doing the same thing that we do today when we look at things like money and think that more money can just deliver and fill that void. They were trying to figure out reality just like we are today. They were trying to, to figure out, wow, how do I make sense and coherent sense of this very complex world that I live in? Well, I don't know. Maybe there's a bunch of different gods, the sun and the trees and the animals and this and that. We've got to make little idols and kind of bow down to them. But hey, here's a, here's a wooden idol. That, that doesn't feel like it's enough. So maybe you have to dress it up with silver and, and gold to make it precious because I... I deem, and I ask this question, think about it, why make these idols out of gold and silver? Well, because we've always thought 
humans have always thought gold and silver are precious. And so you see that this, this little hint there, there's a process of these ancient peoples trying to craft these gods that suddenly they said, you know, we, we have to make it out of precious metals because we, we deem those things to be precious. And as the psalm hints in that verse, it says in verse 8, those who make them will become like them. These images they're making are in, this, are in essence like a mirror of their creator. They are making these images into their own image in some degree. This is why the ancient peoples worshipped, you know, they, they would make a god that was a god of partying. It's like, well, how convenient. It's an excuse to go party. I mean, the Romans and the Greeks did this, right? A lot of their gods started embodying the sinful urges of humanity to go, you know, uh, drink in massive excess and to, you know, open up your, you know, uh, the, the marital bed to whomever. All these things began happening. It was, um, you know, accumulated into worship acts. Because they started making gods in their own image to try to satisfy those longings. Nothing's changed under the sun. So as we continue this conversation in verse 9, again, reorientation. It says, no, 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 these things are not going to deliver. We're going to talk more about this as we continue on. But it says, O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is alive, because listen, he is your help. He is your shield. The idol couldn't do anything. It cannot deliver life. And those who chase after them would be chasing out, uh, in essence, the opposite of life, which is death. No speaking, no hearing. Nothing can be delivered over from that idol. But God, however, is active, and he is alive, and he is helping us. He is our shield, we can actually trust in him, like lean on him for all of our hope because he is our help and our shield. You who fear the Lord, verse 11, trust in him because he is our help and our shield. He has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel, the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great, both rich and poor, both old and young. He will bless them all. He will give us increase. He will increase us and our children. May you be blessed by the Lord, you who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth is our gift. He has given it to the children of man. And this is where we see the comparison of life and death here. It says, the dead do not praise the Lord. Just like those idols, there, there's no life in them. But we will bless the Lord because there is life in him. He is alive and he is active in our life. I want to bridge a gap here that expounds upon this idea a bit more in the New Testament. Because Christianity takes this reality and says, yes, this, the false worship is lifeless and Yahweh God is alive. But the New Testament makes this radical claim that God himself actually took on flesh. We know this, right? But the claims that Jesus himself made were just, sometimes you can read through these things and not really read slow enough to pay attention to the claims being made. Look at this in John chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, feel free to turn to John chapter 1. The question that confronts us as we look at this is if we chase after false 
images, chased after things, trying to find God-sized things to match and to, to bring contentment or satisfaction to those inner groanings in our life. The question I want to ask is you think about where's my attention go in my life that I think maybe I can just find that joy or that peace or that contentment. I can finally find what I'm looking for. And we know that eventually we just start crafting things in our own image I mean, this is like a real modern day cultural, you know, present conversation is, are you the source, the final source of your own life? Are you the final authority in your own life? Is your happiness, does that give you permission to do anything you must in order to be happy? Because if only you are happy, then you actually have found fulfillment. This is what our culture says. That is a claim of divinity inside of us. That is a claim that says you are actually masters of your own universe, and so you have all permission to do whatever you must in order to be happy. This is what our culture is saying. Are you really the source of life in and of yourself? Are you a god, in other words, right? This is what the question ultimately that our culture is proposing, explicitly, actually. I, I read, uh, I love reading opinion articles from all the various newspapers, just to hear like what these you know cultural critics are saying. This is explicit language that's being used, right, about us. And Christianity confronts that immediately. I mean, absolutely confronts that. Because listen to these words in John chapter one. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning, before anything was, was the Word, and the Word was with God, but even more so, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was a light of men. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. Have you ever thought about that phrase, Jesus? Of course, we know this is talking about Jesus here. The in him was life. What does that mean? In Jesus was life? And his life was the light of men? I think Psalm 36, 9 points us to what this means. It says, for with you is the fountain of life. Think of a fountain that just runs continually all day long. This is God himself that in him is a fountain bubbling up with the fullness of life. And it says in Psalm 36, 9, for with you is a fountain of life. In your light do we see light. In other words, if you want to understand everything around you, to come to a, a proper and somewhat, you know, the best in our finite minds, cohesive understanding of this world, to finally find the joy that you're chasing after, you must find the very fountain of life. The New Testament says that fountain of life took on flesh. He actually walked around this earth, and he invited us to know him. And he made other bold claims along these same lines. John 14, as see as Jesus is on, going on his path to be arrested. Disciples still don't really know what's going on. <laughs> Even though he tries to tell them, they're still kind of not catching on. In John 14, Jesus says this. 
he senses this troubled spirit in the room as they're talking about what's impending upon him. And he says, let, your not, let, not, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me, because in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have not have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. This sounds a little cryptic, if we're honest. We read that and we're like, it's not super clear, Jesus. Like, come on. And Thomas was bold enough to raise his hand and say, uh, Lord, we, we don't know where you're going. Can we know the way? Like, that'd be nice. We kind of want to stick with you here. Like, where, where are you going, Jesus? Listen to his words. Jesus said to them, I am, Paul's there. Read the Old Testament. Read Moses before the burning up bush. Who are you that's sending me out to do this mission? What did he say? I am who I am. Jesus, he's making a claim here. In one of many I am statements in the Gospel of John, he says, I am the way and the truth, and here it is again, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. For now on, you do know him and have seen him. Here's what Jesus is making the claim to, okay? He is saying, if you want to know the truth and the fullness of life, I'm the way to it. I am the stepping stones that you must enter onto if you are to find the truth. Not only am I the way to find the truth, but your destination is the truth, and that's me, because I will lead you to the truth which is in me, and once you find the truth, you're going to realize that you just found life, and life to the full, because it is me that you are looking for. If you follow me, you will find God. That's what he's telling his disciples. You follow me, you will find God himself. And as Psalm 16 says, once you find God, you will find the fullness of joy. It is right hand or pleasures forevermore. C.S. Lewis had this to say as I'm going back to this conversation on where does our attention go to? Right. If we identify that we can often um, uh, seek to fill that void in our life by whatever it might be, and as we spend hours upon hours on our phone, whatever you may be searching online, whether it's goofy cat videos of cats falling off a table, and then the next one is just a different version of that. I love the, the skateboarding videos of just like people wiping out. I know it's terrible. And there's also a really other terrible account called Kids Getting Hurt, which isn't that bad but it is kids like tripping and just like falling because it's funny. Come to my house, you'll laugh all day long. My kids trip and fall and it's funny to see other kids trip. They're not like actually hurt. But anyway, you just gotta peep into my weirdness. I know, okay. We all do stuff like this online. Maybe it's, it seems neutral, but when we are absorbing, whatever we absorb for so many hours a day, you must question, am I being shaped by this? I know Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, but is how I perceive this world, is it truly being shaped by him? The things that I value, are they actually the things that Jesus himself values? How I think about all the events in this world, how I think about my neighbors, how I think about my life inside of my own family, what are the things that dominate? Is Jesus your first stop before you and anything else in your life? 
Is he the thing that stands between almost like glasses? I can't see anything now, but now I can see. Is Jesus the glasses that you're putting on your face when you interact with anything and everything in this world? Because this is what Jesus is doing. He's, he's, he's positioning himself to say, you can't do anything without me. You must do all things in me and through me. And that's why I gave you the spirit for that very purpose. This is the Christian life. C.S. Lewis said this, he said, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has arisen. Not only do I see it, but by it I see everything else. Say it one more time. I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen. Not only do I see it, but by it I see everything else. Friends, the, the question that I'm posing before you is, are you busy at work? handcrafting your own self into your own image? Is the attention of your heart given to the things that would satisfy you the most? Is all the content you consume things that kind of scratch your itch and you're being molded and shaped by whatever you're looking at and all the while your life is slowly taking one turn this way and a little shift this way and a little shift this way and the values and all the things of your heart are just slowly taking little steps over here, and Jesus is saying, I, I, I need to reel you in here. I, I think I'm, not, I'm no longer your greatest love in your life. I no longer think that I'm the, the glasses by which you perceive everything in this world. We need deeper, more resilient discipleship in the church. As we grow closer to Christ in these things, if you recognize that the, the false idols and the false gods are all surrounding us, as we try to strip ourselves of them and realize that Jesus and his life and his death for our sins and his resurrection has provided us the very power that we've always been looking for to, to, to strip us of our false loves and to save us and to usher us in into his presence and the world that needs people in Jesus's presence. As we close, I want to ask a couple of questions here is um, questions of like, well, how do we do this? Like, I, I know what you're saying, right? Maybe there's, there's areas in our life that have consumed far too, uh, things in this world that have consumed far too much of our attention, right? And our Lord and Savior has maybe taken a bit of a backseat in the values and the loves of our hearts. And the Spirit's just yearning to, to pull you ever so closer to our Lord Jesus, there's a couple of errors I think that we can make as we do this. Um, the church, some errors we've made is like, all right, so yes, we need to have Jesus as the greatest desire of, of anything in our lives. Great. So what we're going to do is create this world to where everything we consume is only Jesus. Like our music, our games, our fun, our, our entertainment, our, our books, our friends, our everything is just like this whole like world that it's just like, it's like, a, it's like a, a baptized world in which there's nothing but Jesus here. I kind of grew up in that world. And I remember when um, I got out of that world, I wasn't married. Was I married yet? I just got married, actually. And um, landscaping, working in the Jersey Shore. And uh, for, I mean, this is weird to say. It was like years literally many years before I was even like, I was even with people who weren't Christians. And I found myself like, um, 
just kind of like appalled at things and just like not really knowing how to like talk to anybody and just felt very awkward and odd and just wanted to like escape it and go back to that Christian bubble. That's not the answer because Jesus said we're missionary people, right? We're in the world, but we're not of the world. As we wrestle with these things, we must find a path of discipleship that says we, we got to be out there loving our neighbor. We got to be out there um, be following, chasing after Christ, but not uh, shielding ourselves from this world because we know that God Himself is our shield. And that people need to know our Lord Jesus through us. Um, you know, there's a, a version of this. There's this cartoon that, um, I don't know, I forget which one it was, of uh, Booth in, in London back in the 100 years ago, the beginning of Salvation's Ar- uh, Salvation Army, when alcoholism was rampant in London. And, uh, you know, so many people were, were, you know, struggling with alcoholism. And in this uh, cartoon, you had these drunkards and alcoholics who became Christians. But when they were alcoholics, they were like, their shirts were like ripped and they had like matted beards and like they just looked dirty. It was like, uh, 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 like brutes, you know. And then they became Christians and suddenly like they had like a suit and tie on and no more beard. They were just like. And it was almost like, you know, my little kids, you know, I had to kind of pause it and say, you know, this being a Christian isn't about like all that kind of outward stuff because that's, that's what can happen is we get so caught up in trying to like avoid you know these false idols and false worship that we can create that Christian bubble and think that we just have to like it becomes a game that Christians then start playing as to like playing that religious game of looking as Christian as you possibly can and it happens we don't even know we're doing it but it happens right that's not the call of Christ that's not this deeper more resilient discipleship that we need and as we close, as we know that we are a missionary people sent out into the world, and the questions I have is, what lies at the center of how you think about your life? What lies at the center of how you think about your relationships, your vocation, your work, your marriage, your race, your skin color, your holidays, your Sabbaths as a family? What object or person or what receives the most attention in your life? Jesus is the true north of our life's compass in which we are to live every day. That is what it means to have faith and trust on Jesus and his life and his death and resurrection. As we end and close, call the worship team up. Romans 15 actually gives a blessing. And it says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me, um, let me pray for us as we close. Jesus, I pray that we can take an honest assessment of our life, Lord. I, I want to first thank you that you have washed away our sins, that you provided us with the righteousness of Christ. So this is... Um, we can't save ourselves, Lord, and we, and we know that. And you have saved us, Lord. You have done any work that we need in terms of our saving from our own sin that we are talking about a lot this morning, Lord. You have already saved us, Lord. Your life has already given, given us your righteousness, Lord. We're not concerned of salvation before you for those who are Christians in this room. But, Lord, we want all the loves of our hearts, to be set on you above all else. Lord, I pray as we seek to be more resilient disciples, 
chasing after you, Lord, embodying the life and the ministry that you lived when you were here, that the Spirit longs to work in our life. Lord, if, if, if there is a disordered love in our hearts, if, if we are busy away trying to craft images and false idols and chasing after things that simply cannot deliver the life that you are offering us, Lord, I pray that you would expose those things before us. Or that you may be the one who is primarily shaping us and molding us as the potter wants to do with his clay. May we repent well where we need to repent, Lord. And may we gather together as a church of one another to, to lock arms and to walk faithfully with one another after you. Lord, may your glory and your holiness and your righteousness and your majesty utterly consume us, Lord, before all else. We love you, Jesus, and we pray these things in your name. Amen.
Christ in power resurrection.